it's damn near impossible for an individual's natural impulses to match with what the collective's arbitrary rules are. And this separation is what causes shame and discord between the individual and the collective. If you say something awkward, what makes it awkward? It's because that's not the socially expected way to behave in that situation, and you feel that as awkwardness, or other people perceive it as awkwardness. The way to break the social games is to increase your fidelity. In this sense, fidelity means truthfulness to your internal expression. The big thing that you see in relationships is that it's not that the, the two partners are lying to each other, it's that they're not volunteering information that would be really useful to their partner. If you can be not alone in your reality, that takes a lot of the pressure off. It, once you stop being afraid of awkwardness, it becomes very easy to break the game, essentially. The Ruando Podcast is an exploration of the unconscious and the game of life. Be sure to visit ruando.com to get a preview chapter of my upcoming book, Infinite Play, and free access to my content library. Enjoy the show. Okay, we are live. Great. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It's been a couple months since I've done one of these, um, so, well, that's just how it is. Life has been kind of crazy, fun in a good way as well. Um, I have eight chickens now. That's the big change in my life. But uh, I'll talk, talk about that later, maybe. Today's episode is on breaking the social construction of reality. So what does that mean? In most of our perceptions of reality, we've been speaking about reality tunnels in, in recent episodes, most of the world that we feel that we experience actually doesn't come from our own internally generated uh, perceptions. Or rather, a better way to put it is that our our perceptions of the world largely comes from outside influence, advertising, reference groups, and the norms of our society. And this, this latter piece is probably the hardest to perceive, because especially if you've basically been in the same culture, in the same subculture, around the same types of people, in the same reference group for most of your, lives, uh, most of your life, the norms and taboos of your collective probably seem like water to a fish. Most people... Uh, most people don't consider the limitations of the language they speak or the assumptions within a culture. You usually don't notice these things until you go to some other culture or subculture or reference group that you perceive as odd and you recognize that a lot of your norms and perceptions of normal are not um, objective truths. So we're going to break that down. I'm going to try to keep it less academic and more focused on social behavior. Um, speaking about this in three parts, we're going to speak about... Um, why reality agreement and collective perceptions exist. Uh, we're going to go into how society, I guess some of the negatives of how society controls the individual, um, not necessarily for nefarious purposes, but this is, there's almost always a negative impact on the individual when the society has a very strong collective reality. And then finally, we're going to speak about how to break the game. If we view Society's constructs as a game or a matrix that we're stuck in, these norms and perceptions that limit the individual's expression. Um, here's, I'm going to share some uh, simple but I think very impactful tips on how to break the game to live outside of it. Because when we look at some of the, we look at free people, free in the sense of like they don't feel inhibited, they don't feel encumbered. They seem to have a magical quality where they can create their reality, whether metaphorically or, or in concretely. Uh, the people who are really creators of their lives are not bogged down by this game, by the, the social constructions. Um, they have a little more fluidity 
um, because these constructions are what generate our roles, our identities, our taboos, shame. I spoke about shame a lot in the shame episode. We're going to speak less about shame and more about things like awkwardness and common, common experiences people have that also limit their behavior. So the purpose of this, the goal of this is that if you can uh, recognize the social games in your situations, in your collective, in your societies, subcultures that you exist in, you can step outside of them or at least not be limited by them and break the game if you choose to for your own purposes. So for anyone watching live, I know I haven't done one of these live in a really long time. Feel free to um, comment, ask your questions live. I'll try to um, answer the, any questions you have live. Uh, especially if there's something that needs clarifying or is like a, a sub point you want me to focus on, I'm happy to do that because I'm making this for you. And if you're listening to the recording of this, um, well, thanks for subscribing. All right, take a sip of water and we'll jump in. Oh, well, one, um, one announcement. I mean, I said months ago that my website would be, it will be revamped. It's taken months. I thought it would take weeks. So um, all my, my courses are still half off. I mean, I thought this was going to be like a two-week special. It's been like a two-month special. But I'm actually, um, one announcement is that I'm, I've been really uh, pondering the relationship of anxiety and abundance. I've been going deep into like Timothy Leary's work um, and trying to connect uh, practical psychology to a lot of the manifestation stuff that people talk about when they talk about abundance. Um, because I've, I've recognized, and I'll probably do an episode just on this later, of how anxiety is basically the internal experience of scarcity, whereas abundance is like the external experience of the opposite of anxiety, which is expansion and joy. So I'm, I'm gonna be sharing some stuff to my email list soon. So if you're not on my email list and you wanna learn about the relationship of overcoming anxiety and how that leads to abundance, make sure you're subscribed to the Rwanda newsletter at rwando.com. All right, <clears throat> jumping in. So. My experience with uh, awkwardness and social anxiety and social constructions started at a young age with my own uh, social anxiety. And I, I won't go too deep into it. You all know what social anxiety is like. Um, but one experience that I've often had, and I think a lot of guys have, or a lot of people have, when they feel trapped socially, is this feeling of, I don't know what's going on, or I don't know what's supposed to happen. Like a, a lot of guys who reach out to me for a kind of simple dating advice is like, I'm not sure what is what I'm supposed to do. Like, what what am I supposed to say? Right? This supposed to word is um, is is a just to to use the word supposed to or should assumes that there's an external power that knows what's right and wrong as opposed to what you, what you are. And we're gonna break this down uh, like in a very concrete way. Um, but a lot of my, my experience with social anxiety when I was younger is like. I wish someone would just tell me what to do, like in a mingling situation or a party or a school dance. Like I wish someone just told me like what is right because I'm, I'm afraid of doing the wrong thing, right? These perceptions of right and wrong are also arbitrary and, uh, and they're not really based on anything natural. But this, this ex exists in every social group. Um, flash forward some time later, you may have caught the episodes of uh, the time I spent in a cult. When I was in the cult, the social norms were very different. Like their, their socially constructed reality had very different norms, very different taboos. And some of the behavior that in the conventional real world, in quotes, was the right thing to do in the cult environment, it, was, it wasn't the right thing to do. So you have people who are maybe successful and popular in their jobs or conventional locations and they enter this cult community and suddenly their normal modes of behavior, the jokes they make, the, um, the things they talk about, the way they speak is suddenly not 
not right, not okay. So like these people who maybe were like really successful as say business people or they work in tech or something, now they're in this uh, matriarchal environment and the way that they're behaving is not right and they feel awkward. Um, and other people felt the opposite, like there's different rules. And when I, when I experienced this, I mean, it, it kind of highlighted how um, social norms are kind of based on nothing. Like there is no objective norm because you could take someone who's doing the exact right thing in one situation and they put them in another social environment and they're like the weirdest person ever. The, the, the difference between like social resonance and feeling awkward or feeling wrong or ostracized is simply the difference between your natural impulses and what the social order says you should do. Right. So anyway, when I left the cult, this became even more apparent because I tried to return to the real world and I recognized there really is no such thing as the real world. Right. The real world or conventional non-cult world is just another set of arbitrary norms and taboos. Um, even and even in, in the real world, they're not the same. Like what is considered okay in New York is a little different than in Alabama in terms of social behavior. Um, what's considered polite in Thailand is very different than what's considered polite in Africa. Like all of these things are. It's not that there's one way to be, but what it is, what is absolute, is that every group of humans, every society, every culture, every subculture, every reference group has had a set of norms and taboos. Now, the reason why this is, is that, um, and I'm going to reference the Prometheus Rising episode um, from, I guess it's like six months ago. Our reality, we, we have different layers of our nervous system, right? We have the reptilian brain, the mammalian brain, uh, thinking brain, and then also the social order circuit, which is where these, um, these uh, norms and taboos and, and sexual repression and shame comes from. Um, as we developed... Uh, neurologically and and you know our layers of the nervous system also is what uh, creates our reality right like uh, a reptile has no emotional reality like like the idea of emotions have, have like emotional weight has nothing it doesn't exist for a reptile or for a fish um you know the deep thinking world of ideas and politics doesn't exist for a dog dogs don't have politics they have dominance hierarchies not exactly the same thing humans have politics because we have we have the nervous system per to perceive ideas that we call politics um, the reason why the social circuit, which is what Timothy Leary called circuit four, uh, evolved is because every, every neurological circuit evolved in life and humans are among the most advanced on earth. We could argue that dolphins and whales are on the same page as us. They just don't have thumbs. Um, uh, the reason why each, each circuit evolves is to fill in the gaps or the limitations of the previous circuit. So very briefly, like, um, the reptile circuit is great for certain things, is great for hunting food and getting away from danger, but it, it is not good at socializing, right? Reptiles can't, can't collectively work together. Um, so the mammalian brain developed so that mammals can work together. Birds, to some degree, not as much as mammals can work together. Um, and and that's, that's why we have emotions, essentially. And then humans, uh, we have circuit three. I think you know, we're probably the only animals. Maybe, maybe dolphins, whales, and octopi have some version of circuit three. But we, we uh, developed a nervous system that can perceive ideas and mythologies because even, um, even though we have a mammalian circuit, you can only have so many emotional relationships for a group of humans to organize over tens of hundreds of thousands of people, you need an idea to connect you. You need a mythology. Um, so that's why we have a circuit three. Now, the problem with circuit three is that this world of ideas can totally spin out of control. If every single individual in a tribe can come up with their own perceptions and their own 
ideas of right and wrong. And the, I mean, I mean, circuit three doesn't even consider right and wrong. Morality is a circuit four thing. If everyone could come up with their own perceptions of what things are and what they should be called and their perceptions of time, it, it becomes very difficult for everyone to organize and do something. Like everyone has their own customs. If every individual has their own perception of what to do or behavior, it's very hard to organize. So circuit four evolved in humans, um, which is essentially the moral circuit, um, to impose an idea of this is how you're supposed to be. If, if, um, if there's a, a moral circuit for a certain tribe of like, we don't steal from each other, great. If everyone believes in that, then now there's no more stealing. That's like one that's maybe a universally positive uh, moral to instill in people. But then you have uh, certain morals and taboos which are kind of arbitrary from culture to culture. Like the example Robert Anton Wilson shares in Prometheus Rising is that um, the, if the president of the United States wants to marry his sister, that's incredibly taboo. Everyone will think he's crazy and, and blah, blah, blah. If the pharaoh of Egypt didn't want to marry his sister in ancient Egypt, everyone would think he was crazy. Like so a lot of these things are kind of arbitrary. It's not that they're necessarily right or even useful. It's that every society has to have rules for everyone to coalesce around something. Now the issue is that when, for most people, or in most situations, actually pretty much all the time, it's damn near impossible for an individual's natural impulses to match with what the collective's arbitrary rules are. And this separation is what causes shame and discord between the individual and the collective. So before we go into you know, the negatives, I kind of jumped ahead, um, it's good to understand why, why we need re reality agreement um, and versus, versus like all of us having our own reality, which is essentially what delusion is. So. Um, Circuit three, as I mentioned, like the thinking circuit, uh, the goal of circuit three is to create sanity. Sanity being that we can be clear that um, I'm not the only one seeing this cup, right? You, you guys can all confirm there's a cup here, right? I'm not the only person who can see the person I was just talking to, right? We are all on the same page. Like that kind of thing is important for um, circuit three because if you are perceiving things that no one else is perceiving, it's a very terrifying experience. And in the same way that if you are socially ostracized from your tribe um, because you can't get along with people and they leave you, which is terrifying to our, mam our mammal brain, um, our thinking brain uh, needs to make sure that everyone understands things the way that we understand them. Otherwise, we feel crazy and we feel alone, which is why so many people fight about terminology and ideas. Like if you look at how people fight with each other about nutrition or politics, obviously, um, especially on the Internet, because the Internet is kind of like this uh, is this world where. Uh, it's, it's pretty much a circuit three paradise. Like people can just throw out ideas without connection, without being encumbered by the physical world. Um, and you see a lot of these issues on the internet specifically because they can do things um, without their physical presence. Um, so like on this whole idea of sanity, this idea of sanity is simply that other people are confirming what you see, right? We have this idea that there's like an absolute of sane versus insane, but a lot of it is relative. So like there's this um, Jewish parable I think it was in the four hour work week where I first read this, but I'm repeating it because it's very useful. So this is a Jewish parable where um, this man is in a village um, and he, he goes out one day and he comes back and he sees that all of his friends and family in his tribe had drank from this one pond. And because they drank from this pond, there must have been something in the water because they're all speaking funny. They're speaking this weird language that makes no sense. And they're doing all these weird things that make no sense to him. Like they, they, it's totally opposite of what they normally do as a tribe. 
And every time he tries to explain to them, hey, you guys are being crazy, like they don't understand him. They can't understand the words he's saying. They think what he's doing is very odd. They're all doing these weird customs together because they drank this water that made him crazy. So for weeks, he's terrified. He's feeling alone. He doesn't know what to do because he doesn't know how to save his friends and family. They've all gone crazy. And then he realizes that he found a solution. He drinks the water, right? The only, the, his problem wasn't that they were doing something wrong. It was that he was the only one doing this separate thing. He was the only one in his reality. Once he drank the water, they were no longer crazy because he saw the world the way as, um, as they did. So this is kind of the essence of the social constructs of our, our reality. So, and the reason why all of this matters is that so many people, and I, and I see this uh, a lot of the times with the guys I coach, especially guys from like religious backgrounds or Asian, Asian backgrounds, there's a lot of control uh, placed on the kids. Like religion and certain cultures, I mean, they essentially exist or what makes them a strong culture is that they impose norms of behavior on their new recruits, their young people, their, uh, yeah, the, their impressionable folk. And, that, and that's actually what makes a culture strong when we think of a culture that has really survived, uh, you know, I, I'm not, this is not like a negative on, on Judaism, but like there's actually, you know, something incredible about uh, Jewish culture is that they, they've survived thousands of years despite oppression, despite um, various things, but Part of what allowed um, that culture to, to persist, or like, you know, you look at Asian cultures in America and how, um, I mean, these are, these are overall positive things, but the reason why uh, Asians do well in math or they do well in school is that they, these cultures tend to impose very strict modes of behavior and norms of perception on, the, on their individuals is why they do well. Um, okay, so our sense of normalcy, the whole point of this, this is the story, the Jewish parable, is that our sense of normalcy, which is what is okay versus what's not okay, what's normal versus not normal, is, is collectively programmed. Like one person on an island by him or herself can't figure out what's normal. Like what is normal to one person? Normal is whatever that person is doing. You have two people or five people on the island. Normal is what the, the, the collective does or like the majority does. Um, you have a thousand people. If 800 people do things one way, and 200 people don't, or I mean, or I should say like 950 people do things one way and 50 people don't, those 50 people are not normal. If that minority and majority switch, well then the, the sense of normal switches as well. Um, so on the flip side, and we spoke a little bit about being in an isolated reality, this experience is so terrifying for our circuit three mind, which is trying to make sense of the world, trying to understand like, this is what the world is, right? I'm not the only one seeing this. Because to be by yourself in an isolated reality is one of the most terrifying experiences. And I spoke about this in the addiction episode is like, you know, they speak, I mean, in 12 step, in, in most addiction theory, they speak about the terror of isolation and how things that separate you from connection, like resentment, um, leads to addiction. Why? Because it's kind of like the cancer analogy. If uh, a cancer cell is a cell that has lost its connection for the greater body, so it just consumes and it does things that don't make sense. It does things that even harm itself because it doesn't feel connected to the group. This is why connection to some collective is so important. Like we need community. We know this as far as like um, a super longevity, like in the blue zones in, around the earth where there's a lot of 100 uh, year olds. Um, the number one thing that seems to correlate with lifespan, like long lifespan, is community. 
It's not diet. It's not even environmental factors, even though those are important. It's if a person is in a community where they feel loved, they feel connected, they tend to be longer, they, te- they tend to live longer, they tend to be happier and healthier. Um, so the idea of the feeling to like, uh, to our circuit three brain and to more primitive parts of our nervous system, the idea of being alone in a reality, being separated, is, is synonymous with death. And this, this is why it's so terrifying. It's actually, it's reminded me of um, a horror series for kids that I read when I was a kid. It was popular in the 90s called Goosebumps, if anyone remembers Goosebumps, by Arl Stein. It was basically, uh, you know, it was basically these scary stories, almost the same plot every time. Like it was like a, a main character was a kid, uh, he or she discovers the ghost or the ghoul or the monster or the scary thing or the, the you know the black magic spell that was cast on something, but it's always that the main character finds out before everyone else and no one believes him. And I think there's a reason why. I mean, there's a reason why Goosebumps was so popular too. Like this is an experience that I, I think a lot of kids uh, feel afraid of and a lot of people feel afraid of. But I think it's a thing like most kids, especially around seven to nine years old, when you know the, the demographic for Goosebumps books. They're starting to come into their own thoughts, their own ideas, and stop being a little kid. And they they might have this feeling that grown-ups never listen to me, or they never believe me what I'm I believe what I'm saying. So I think these stories resonate a lot to children of that age, but also for all of us. Like one of the most terrifying things is to recognize there's a monster coming, and no one believes you, whatever that monster represents. Right? We we see this with by people who conspiracy theorists and people who are you know, for causes like climate change, like how come no one else is seeing this? Like it's a very terrifying experience and frustrating experience. So um, uh, anyway, yeah. So the reason why reality agreement is so important is that we fear isolation, but also, as I mentioned before, for a superorganism of hundreds or thousands of humans or millions of humans to act together, um, they need to perceive a common mythology, but they also, I mean, they need to be able to perceive mythology, which is circuit three, but they also need to be able to perceive a common mythology, uh, which is circuit four, which is, I mean, circuits in, in Timothy Leary's model of consciousness. Um, it's it's uh, circuit four evolved to, to basically corral every free thinking person into generally the straight line of being so the society can function. This is great for the collective, it's great for society, it's a great a uh, communist ideal, but it's um, it's not healthy, or it, it leaves opportunities for the individual to feel oppressed. So the thing I want you to understand with this part right here is that the taboos and norms of society are mostly arbitrary. If you can understand this point by itself, it'll take away a lot of the stress that comes from, oh, I'm not like everyone else. Oh, I'm not, I'm not normal. I'm not doing the right thing. It's like no one is like everyone else. Some people are able to suppress their own instincts a little better to get along with the norms of society. Um, some people are a little closer to whatever the norms of their society are and that they got lucky. They got born into a place where they, um, they feel kind of resonant with their group. Um, but to understand this, because so much, and I see this mostly in like um, young men of Asian descent, uh, Indians, Chinese guys. Um, I've, I've spoken to so many younger guys who like, they're so clear what they want to do in life. They're so clear with their desires, so clear with their purpose, but they won't do it because they're afraid of what their parents will think or they're afraid of what their extended family will think. And that's such a sad experience because it's like, what are you going to do? You're going to waste this lifetime for someone else. You're going to live your entire lifetime for someone else to meet their expectations when you already know what it is what you want to do. Anyway, this brings us to part two which is, um, so the next part is understand, we understood now why 
These reality agreements are important to us instinctually. Why society imposes them is not that society is evil, but they often have um, social goals are not always the same as individual goals. So we want to next understand uh, how society controls people because you think most people don't think of it consciously of like, oh, I'm doing exactly what my reference group says or, oh, I mean, I guess a lot of like, Asian kids will think this like, oh, I'm doing exactly this because that's what my parents want. But for most of us who are do going along with norms and perceptions of, and taboos of society, it's, it is like water to a fish. It is um, something that you don't really think about of like, why do we do this this way? Um, I was actually a couple of days ago, I had my housewarming party, uh, my new house in Thailand. And um, it was like, I'm in a nomad community. So there's people from different countries. And there's one girl here who is half Thai, half American. And she was sharing how, um, excuse me, uh, sharing how uh, what, she, she grew up in Thailand, but then she went to America with her American family uh, for high school or something. And when she first got to America, um, she like banged her elbow somewhere and she said, oi, because in Thailand, they don't say ouch, they say oi. That's like, that's their mode of expression for like when you stub your toe or something. And her American cousins totally like made fun of her, shamed her, chewed her out. Like in America, you don't say oi, you say ouch. And it like freaked her out. She was like maybe 12 or 13. Um, so she never said oi again. She always said ouch. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, whatever, cute, funny, seemingly meaningless story, but this is exactly how um, cultural norms or societal norms are imposed. Um, so so I was actually, she was actually saying like, yeah, I mean, my cousin was so mean, like she got me in my head, but I was actually thinking, you know, like she was doing it maybe like, you know, as an unconscious dick move, but in a, in a way her cousin was protecting her from all the even meaner kids in high school who would have really ostracized her or, or not even ostracized but really have seen her as different really have seen her as a foreigner because she would stub her uh you know bang her elbow and say oi like these little things it's not that like who, ouch versus oi they're completely you know uh, arbitrary things um but the fact that everyone in america says ouch and everyone in thailand says oi that's what coalesces the group so one of the main ways, um, and actually I want to, I want to read a quote from Finite Infinite Games that references this. Um, so anyway, society is basically, what society basically is a sum of relations under public constraint. And I want to read this quote from Finite Infinite Games, which says that in more words, but I like the way he put it. Where is chapter 49? Oh, page 49, excuse me. Okay. In their own political engagements, infinite players make a distinction between society and culture. Society, they understand, as the sum of those relations that are under some form of public constraint. Culture, as whatever we do with each other by undirected choice. If society is all that a people feels it must do, a culture is the realm of the variable free and not necessarily universal of all that cannot lay claim to compulsive authority. So essentially, uh, Kars defines uh, society as um, a set of norms imposed by an authority. So we can think of this authority as, um, and essentially we, this authority is like wanting everyone to be on the same page and be normal. Um, and so, so the emotions, so one of the ways that uh, a society imposes normalcy is through language. So I just mentioned that with the ouch versus oi thing. There's lots of terminology that we use even within like say a country like America based on the city you're in or the subcultures you're in, um, you know, the, the generation you were born into. We use different language and this language identifies 
who people are. Like I used to always wonder, and I've asked a lot of uh, a lot of my gay friends, like, what is the deal with like, gay flamboyancy? Like, why is it that like there's like a gay voice, or, like there's gay mannerisms? And uh, one guy told me, um, or one guy suggested, gay man suggested that this is like kind of a way of letting other people know who's gay. It's like a way. It's just like you know, it, part of it's instinctual, but it's like also he was actually telling me like. Um, Around straight people, he doesn't he doesn't add flamboyant at all. But when he's at a gay gym around gay people, like all this flamboyancy just comes out. It's like it's like when you're with when you're with birds of your feather, you you demonstrate certain behaviors and language to let everyone know that hey, we're one unit. Like we there's us, and then the, the rest of them there's someone else. There's them, but here we are coalesced as a group. So language is a huge thing, and that's why you know I I, I spoke about this in like the cult one of the cult episodes is that recognizing the language you use is big because one of the ways to see whose limbic system is is leading the reality or who who's who's the who's the dominant person in the reality is who's introducing verbiage like uh, a big dominance play that a lot of people do unintentionally and follow un unconsciously is um is nicknames like if if you're if if someone uses a cutesy word and other people use that cutesy word or someone gives a nickname to someone in a group and everyone else in, or and the person accepts that nickname, they're all following the language leader, right? The language leader is often the reality leader because language uh, can, uh, language creates reality. So um, so a couple things on language. Okay, and there's also a thing, uh, I'm going to speak a little more about language in a second. Um, the emotions that we want to look out for when it comes to um, being controlled by an external force are shame. We spoke a lot about shame in the shame episode, in the dark masculine episode, and also the addiction episode. Like Shame is like this separation of like, here I am and here's where I should be based on whatever, right? And that separation is shame. It's like, I'm not quite, I'm not quite right, I'm not quite good. Um, but on a, and I've spoken a lot about shame. Another emotion on that same continuum is awkwardness. Awkwardness is like shame light. Anytime we feel awkward or fear feeling awkward or try to avoid awkwardness or like like anytime you feel that, that is it is some like some subconscious programming saying there is some right way of being and you're not doing it. It's like this urge to assimilate into the collective or like I need to figure out what the right way of, of, of like holding myself or speaking or like if you say something awkward, what makes it awkward? It's because that's not the socially expected way to behave in that situation and you feel that as awkwardness or other people perceive it as awkwardness. That's essentially it. So I'm not going to speak so much about shame because awkwardness is kind of like the step, the stage much before shame. Awkward, I mean, awkwardness becomes shame when it's like that separation becomes exacerbated or you feel even shittier about your awkwardness. But I, I want to speak about awkwardness because um, we'll talk about that in part three. Um, awkwardness is actually a good thing, right? If you are uh, feeling awkwardness, um, it's kind of a sign that okay, here's a separation between my natural impulses and the collectively imposed norms, here's an opportunity to break the game, essentially. We're talking about that in part three. But just, uh, so fi finishing part two on how society controls us, um, the feeling of awkwardness, shame later, um, and language. So I, I mentioned this in the beginning of the episode, um, the words supposed to and should, should especially. A lot of people throw around the word should, not recognizing what they're really saying when they use the word should. Anytime someone uses the word should, they are imposing, uh, should is a moralistic control word. Anytime you say, oh, you should do this, or you should do that, or um, people really should, or the government really should, they're, say, they're, they're imposing this 
they're, they're implying that the presupposition of that word is that there is some way of being and that and the person that should do something is not living up to it yet, right? That should largely is also arbitrary. Even in the personal development world, you see this a lot. You see this from coaches like, oh, you should do this. People need to do that or whatever. Um, that is not clear language. Like when you just say you, like, even if you're giving if someone's overweight, it's like, oh, you should do intermittent fasting. Like all of these things are assuming a result. They're implying a whole list of things that if the person accepts that, they're agreeing to this like list of unspoken things. So a more clear way, and this is important with how, letting, how you let people speak to you. Like if someone says you should do something and you're just like, oh yeah, I should do it. And you don't think about what they're actually implying. You're basically being controlled by their reality or the collective reality. So I think it's important to always um, uh, translate a should statement into a conditional statement. So an if then statement, because then you can actually see what the actual person is saying. So even with like good advice, like, oh, you're 50 pounds overweight, uh, you should try intermittent fasting. What they really are saying is, if you do intermittent fasting, I believe then you will lose weight and that and you'll be happier. That's essentially what they're saying with the should. But if you just accept the should, you're like basically accepting a list of implications that maybe you don't agree with. And advertisers do this a lot. Um, political folk do this a lot. There's a lot of shoulds in the I mean, I don't, I don't follow politics at all, but I know there is some racial. There's a lot of racial tension in America. A lot of shoulds being thrown out. I've seen little bits of it. Um, a lot of is's. Another tool against this is E prime. I've spoken about E prime in a few episodes. E prime is essentially English without the verb to be. It's uh, English where you speak in operational language. I I've spoken about this before, so I'll, I'll try to keep this short. But um, the verb to be and all its conjugations, I am, you are, it is, you know, that is racist, that is whatever. Um, all of these statements don't really say anything concrete. They kind of like should, they imply something that's not being spoken. And especially for arguments, it's important for everyone to know what actually the, the, what the actual statements are being said. Is leaves a lot of vagary open. Um, so E prime, if you can learn how to remove the verb to be from your language, it forces you to speak in clear operational language, in, in clear concrete language. Um, so uh, yeah, all right. So all of this stuff, I didn't speak about roles yet. But essentially, the way that um, this circuit for social reality organizes a society is it has all these norms, and it also assigns people roles, right? Like, so in, um, in, a, in a pack of dogs, there aren't really specific roles. In a pack of dogs, there's a hierarchy. There's a top dog, there's a bottom dog, there's all the dogs in between. With chickens, there's a pecking order. There's the alpha chicken, I don't know if they call them an alpha chicken. There's the chickens, there's the lowest chicken, and there's an order. But human societies are a lot more complex than a power hierarchy. Human societies have specific roles and different statuses within the roles, and, and there's like a, a huge web, call it a matrix, of different interlocking social expectations. Language supports these roles. Um, uh, roles essentially developed to order society as a well-functioning superorganism, and that is not a bad thing in itself, right? Um, in a certain village, it's great if there's one person who focuses on making shoes and one fo person who focuses on making food, and like everyone can specialize, and that's great. Now, the issue is when we get stuck in these static roles that don't uh, serve us. So in modern-day society, we don't really think about our jobs very often in, in terms of roles. Uh, the most common time that roles are brought up are like with gender identity or identity politics. I'm not going to go deep on politics, but one of my 
my main criticism of a lot the way a lot of people speak about identity politics is not is not about um is not bringing up the issue itself because it is true as i've been speaking about throughout this whole episode um all of these social constructs are constructs a lot of them are arbitrary um even even the ones that are based on biology in some way they're also arbitrary the pro the thing is though when people are complaining about pronouns, identity politics, this way and that way, they're not actually breaking the game. All they're doing is replacing one set of norms and roles and taboos with another set of norms and roles and taboos. Like this whole thing with the gender pronouns is like, um, we can't use the traditional gender pronouns, but now you have to use these pronouns. They're just, they're just imposing another arbitrary dogma on societies. Like, you, you need to talk like us. We're not going to talk like you, you need to talk like us, which also is, is the same exact thing. It's just, it's just switching around um, who's the oppressor and who's the oppressed, which is, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's not actually leaving the social construct game. Now, I don't care. I'm not, gonna, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying anyone should do anything, you know, as, as I pointed out, that's a meaningless statement. Um, but for the individual, here's the conditional statement. If you feel trapped by your social... Uh, by your socially constructed reality, by the norms and taboos, you need to recognize that all of them are arbitrary and you can sidestep it and you can break the game if you can recognize the norms, like the rules of the game. I mean, if you look at any social situation with multiple people, multiple players, if you look at it through a game theory perspective, um, uh, the rules of the game are, are whatever is considered right and wrong. I mean, in, in our sense, I'm, I'm speaking about norms in a general sense because the applications can be very specific, but um, anything that's considered normal or right, anything that's considered awkward versus not awkward, these are largely arbitrary. And if you can recognize the assumptions of your collective reality, it becomes a lot easier to sidestep them or break them and be free of them. Which brings us to the final part of how to break the game. So in the most purest sense, it's easier said than done, but essentially the way to break the social games is to increase your fidelity. So in this sense, fidelity means truthfulness to your internal, um, internal expression. Uh, a lot of the, the issues and a lot of the ways that societies trap us, whether it's your, whether it's your ethnic culture, or your family, or the society you're born in, or the, the politics of the people around you, um, these things can feel trapping. I mean, a lot of times when, uh, especially a younger guy reaches out to me and he's like, I, I, you know, I, I found all this stuff on YouTube and like, I recognize I want to travel the world and, and date in this way and create a business like this. But man, it's so hard because every, no one I know in my town does this. My, my simple advice to that such a person is get out of your town. It'll be so much easier when you're, when, when, cause like they have this reality they want to experience in the world and their feedback from the environment is constantly the opposite. It's very difficult to do this. It's like, um, you have to be a really powerful magician, if you will, to fight against all of this uh, contrary evidence. Um, all right, so breaking the game. Uh, I mean, a small example of this, um, at, my, um, at my housewarming party recently, uh, I invited a bunch of people from a different, like ver various places that I met. And you know, I, I got all stoned, I got a little paranoid, and I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm doing something wrong. I need to be spending more time with them or introducing them to people or something. And then I, I thought about this episode is actually part of this is what um, inspired me to talk about this today is I was recognizing that uh, I'm morphing myself and my paranoia to an expectation that I think someone else has because I think I'm, I'm deferring to them of what is right, right? And, it, and this is a very uh, benign example, right? This it, it ended up not meaning anything. Everyone I invited had a great time. It was fine as far as I could tell. And even if they didn't, it's not my fault, right? Um, 
as opposed to doing what I felt was right, which was sitting on a couch and talking to the people that I was around. Um, but this is a, a pretty benign example. But a lot of times when people are in dating situations, in group social situations, in, in any situation where uh, the result is feeling social anxiety or awkwardness or not being cool enough, a lot of the time what it comes down to is assuming that there is a collective way of being that's better than your way. Now, now in some cases it might be it might be the case if you go to like I don't know a business meeting in China and you break some codes it could have a negative impact. But in most social situations where there's not like a clear set of customs and culture, and, and this is where people usually get uncomfortable is when the customs and culture isn't clear. I mean, I, I've noted I noticed when when I feel awkward or anxious, like some, I'm like, like I wish someone would just tell me the right way of being, right? And I will do that because I just don't want to I don't want to be the wrong person here, right? In those situations where it's ambiguous, almost always whoever decides the way of being is right, right? Like if, if you decide that I'm, if, if you're just right with yourself, you're the one that's right. And if you're more confident and more sure of yourself, the other people almost always will be like, oh, well, let's do it his or her way. Because most people don't want to take, um, take um, responsibility for their reality. So I think that the application for this in, in parties is very, very obvious. I mean, there's nothing wrong with I mean, whatever you feel is the right thing. So I have three keys of how to specifically break the game, uh, trying to bring it down from the high level. First thing is radical honesty. This comes down to the idea of fidelity of are you expressing yourself? Is your reality reflective of your internal experience with high magnitude, right? So truth, a lot of people think of truth in a binary sense, like I either said the truth or I lied, right? But there's a whole range of amount of truth or magnitude of truth of like, you can say, you can say, if someone says, how you doing? You can say, I'm good. And that might be true. Or you can share with them what's really going on in your life and what you're really thinking about. Not to say that you should, but that is a higher magnitude of truth, right? Um, uh, the big thing that you see in relationships, and this comes up in relationship counseling all the time, is that it's not that the, the two partners are lying to each other, it's that they're not volunteering information that would be really useful to their partner, right? It's not technically a lie in their head. They're like, well, I didn't lie. I'm telling the truth. It's like, no, but you're reducing the fidelity of your relationship, fidelity in the, in the truth-telling sense, by not upping the ante, or like not upping the level of truth. So in day-to-day in, in -day life, in trying to break the social game that's imposed on you, to the, higher, the, the, to the degree that you can express your truth uh, is the degree that you can overcome the socially constructed reality. Like saying how you feel, saying what you actually want to do in a social situation, saying what you actually want to do in your life if you feel, you know, from a macro sense, if you feel like socially constructed reality is imposing itself on you. Um, these kinds of things um, are how you break the game, essentially. Second thing, on the same note, um, is uh, digging into taboos. So we spoke about norms a lot in this episode. Uh, taboos are essentially the things that are normal not to do. So we spoke about like sexual taboos with like Egyptian pharaohs versus pres the president of America. Uh, um, taboos are basically a list of things that like society would ostracize you or it implies that society would ostracize you if you did these things. The thing is, and this is where, um, this is why this circuit for consciousness ties so deeply to sexuality. I'm not getting into it in this episode, but essentially morality first evolved in humans to control reproduction. Um, I won't go into it now. I kind of went deep into it in the Prometheus Rising episode. But essentially, um, uh, taboos, oh, we'll go backwards. Uh, sexuality is one of these places. Sex and comedy are two areas of life 
where our lower impulses kind of trump the external uh, socially imposed things, right? So like things are funny or comedians make us laugh when they say the thing that we wanted to think or we were thinking in a way that like it forces us back. Because like, so this low fidelity, like let's say there's a, a thing that everyone's thinking, right? It's deep down, it's like a instinctual truth. But there's a way that everyone has to act because um, that's how society decides we should act. This separation, which causes tension and just, you know, it can cause awkwardness, it, I mean, um, or it, causes, it can cause shame in people. It creates tension. The separation between how we're feeling and how we have to pretend like we're feeling or how we actually are and how we have to pretend that we are, it causes this tension. So essentially when a comedian makes a joke um, that makes us laugh, it's like they, they stretch the tension and they collapse. And that release of tension is what comes out as laughter, whether it's political comedy or relationship stuff or racial stuff. And that's why comedy often touches on taboo subjects because it's like... A thing that's taboo, it's not, there's no universal taboo. It's that society has decided this is not okay, and that not okayness creates this tension because for our unconscious, everything's okay. For our deep instinctual self, everything's okay. If you look at a reptile, um, reptiles don't have morals, like, and we have a reptile brain in us, so we have all these impulses that are not okay if we're in most societies or in what your society, and that creates tension, and it can cause shame, it can cause emotional discord, which is why my second tip is to dig into taboos. If you can at least entertain in taboos, like you might have a, and, and sexuality tends to be a place where there's a lot of taboo, um, things that you find funny, I mean, sex and comedy, uh, and anything emotional that isn't rational, so like anger can be taboo, violent feelings can be taboo. It's not that you should do these things, but if, you, um, if you're willing to play with these things or talk about these things or find some sort of outlet, right? Like you're not going to go around stabbing people, but if you're having those fantasies, maybe you can find some way of expressing it or at least talking about it because going back to the very first point, if you can, um, if you can be not alone in your reality, that takes a lot of the pressure off. Right? The most terrifying thing, and you know, this is tied to addiction and a lot of uh, feeling, I mean, some of the most terrifying internal experiences is when you're alone in your reality. And one of the reasons why things like confession in, in Christianity or seeing a therapist or simply talking about your feelings when you're on MDMA or with a, a buddy when you're drunk or something where you can open up and share, just talking about the things that make you feel shitty and isolated can allow another person, if, they're, if they have baseline empathy, to experience that thing with you, and even if like they can't, they can't relate to your desire to punch people in the face, if you can just share that, it, it lets you not be alone in that reality, and it takes a lot of the pressure off. It, it reduces that tension um, that we see comedy and sexuality. And like, if you, I mean, I was advertising on Pornhub for a little bit. I was able to see the, the search terms that are popular. It's almost always something repressed. Like during COVID, the number one search term was... Um, with quarantine sex, right? Kind of bizarre, right? Because that thing was causing tension. People didn't want to deal with it. Like, ah, oh, this is like weird thing. We have to wear masks. So they ended up fantasizing about it. I spoke about sexual fantasy in other episodes. So I'm not going to repeat that. But that's essentially why digging in taboos is the second tip for breaking the game. The final thing, I, I referenced it already, is playing with awkwardness. This is something that happens all, I mean, day to day, there's opportunities for awkwardness. And I'm not saying that you should try to be awkward. You might want to. You might want to just play with that, um, especially if you feel particularly afraid of awkwardness or you often feel wrong in situations and you don't know why. I would actually maybe encourage you to intentionally be awkward or do things intentionally that you know are going to make other people feel awkward because that's essentially 
That's essentially how the game controls you, right? If you are afraid of this feeling of awkwardness and you do anything to avoid awkwardness, that's essentially the collective getting you in line with the way that the collective says you should be. And if that way, if that groove is different than your natural groove, that tension is all that, that separation is always going to cause issues for you. You're always going to feel shitty. You're always going to feel trapped and not free. So, uh, being willing to play with awkwardness for your internally driven truth is is something that if, once you stop being afraid of awkwardness, um, it becomes very easy to break the game essentially and live the way you want to live. And uh, yeah, because the this social sociosexual conditioning exists to restrict natural instincts to basically get everyone behaving the same way. I didn't speak too much about roles and caste. This is also a function of social conditioning. I spoke about roles a little bit. I don't think we need to go into the different things. I mean, in most, just as one academic point, in most societies and reference groups, the, the group that sets the norms and taboos are the people in charge, right? They set these norms and taboos so they remain the top caste in the society or the, the top status group. Um, in any society, the uh, the norms and taboos tend to benefit the the the, the top people rather than the bottom people. Um, that's why they're on the top and they're on the bottom. Um, and uh, yeah, and that that's why uh, taboos taboo behavior is typically synonymous with revolution because it's kind of forcing the people who are on the high castle back down. Um, and then another example. I don't know if uh, this movies easily recognizable but Pleasantville I think it was a movie in the 90s uh, it was about this like kind of fake 1950s world like the kids go into the TV everything's in black and white everything is fake once people start expressing their deeper truths sexuality um, more emotional truth they became in color and I, and I really like this concept of like if you get back to your natural instinct if you are willing to express your genuine truth as opposed to trying to fit in to avoid awkwardness that's how you turn the, the that, that's how you turn on the fidelity of your reality. That's how you turn on the definition, turn up the definition, or turn up the color of the experience um, you're living. Because if you're constantly letting the collective suppress your natural instinct, your life becomes drab, and a lot of existential angst comes from this. Of like, I'm I'm living a life in black and white because I'm not doing me. I'm doing what Pleasantville tells me to do. I meant, I meant to mention the book Brave New World because I just read that. And, it, and it, Brave New World, the book, it's a great book from the 30s about um, a future utopia dystopia where um, basically all of society is organized as a well-oiled machine and there's clear caste systems and stuff. Uh, it's basically a satire on this the, you know, socially constructed order can maybe impose happiness or control or contentment, but at the expense of freedom. Happiness and freedom often conflict. And uh, I didn't have to say this, I think it's implied that I'm more in favor of you seeking freedom of your expression than seeking happiness or contentment um, as given to you by the collective. So that's what I got. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get back to doing these every week. I thought I was going to, I thought, yeah, anyway, I'm not going to promise anything because uh, things have been very wacky here. Um, yeah, last announcement, uh, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, I've been exploring the relationship of anxiety and abundance. Um, so if you want to learn more about that, I have some free stuff coming out. I'm only going to be sharing it with my email list, so make sure you're on my email list. I also have a course coming out on that later. 
Um, so make sure you're subscribed on the Rondo.com website. My new website should be up soon. Should have a bunch of new guests uh, this fall. If there's anything you want me to talk about in these lives, message me in the Masculine Underground group. That is all. I'm going to tend to my chickens. Oh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't mention I have eight chickens now. I was gifted eight chickens. They are my favorite hobby. I'm going to go play with my chickens. Goodbye. Yeah.